Hey everyone, welcome to The Question Show. Your questions, my answers, as always, wherever you are, across my channel, if a question pops into your brain, just write it down, I will gather them up, and I will answer them here, if I don't answer them in the comments. If I answer them in the comments, then I probably won't answer them here, so just be aware of that. Um, now, I record this show live every Monday at 5 p.m. Pacific time, so if you want to join live, you can. Uh, for the patrons, we include a link to the full unlisted live stream show. So if people have been asking me for that, uh, so if you're one of the patrons, I'll put that in the link to the latest show and you can access it from there. All right, uh, let's get into the questions. Jeremy Harris. Hey, Fraser, how different would our understanding of the universe beyond the solar system be today if we had huge, modern, cutting edge technology, ground based telescopes, but no space telescopes because rocket technology hadn't been invented yet? That's a terrific question. And it we're going to go into what the different wavelengths of light are and why they're most useful, which things are good for the ground and which things have to be done in space. So the electromagnetic spectrum, which is essentially just photons, they're all the same thing. So you go from radio waves on one side through microwaves, infrared, visible light, ultraviolet, x rays and gamma rays, they're all the same thing. They're all just photons. It's just where they are shifted on the electromagnetic spectrum. And when photons of different wavelengths try to pass through the atmosphere, they behave in different ways. So broadly speaking, the atmosphere blocks some radio waves, but not very much. Most of the microwave spectrum, the far infrared spectrum, none of the visible, the ultraviolet is blocked by the atmosphere, x rays are totally blocked by the atmosphere, and gamma rays are blocked by the atmosphere. So if you want to decide which telescopes you could put on the ground and which ones you would put into space, you would put your radio and your near infrared and your visible light telescopes on the ground, and you'd put your microwave, your far infrared, your ultraviolet x rays and gamma radiation out in space. What kinds of things would you not be able to see if you couldn't go to space? Now you could see some microwaves, there are some like microwave observatories here, they're, you know, microwaves kind of part of the radio spectrum, but the cosmic microwave background radiation, although you can detect it on the ground, to really resolve it, you need to be out in space. And that's why WMAP, Kobe, uh, various, the Planck instrument, these are all space telescopes designed to map the cosmic microwave background. And so we use that to understand the age of the universe, the size of the universe, to confirm the Big Bang, it's really important. So we probably wouldn't have evidence that evidence for the Big Bang if we hadn't built space telescopes to go out and study it. Far infrared is some of the coolest objects. That's what the Spitzer Space Telescope was that shows us it peers through the gas and dust and allows us to see say newly forming stars and planets around them allows us to peer through the gas and dust at the center of the Milky Way to be able to see the image around where the supermassive black hole is. It's what allowed us to peer through the disk of the Milky Way and see what the great attractor is, you know, so I guess the great attractor would still be a mystery. Ultraviolet is newly forming stars emit a lot of ultraviolet radiation. And so without ultraviolet, we wouldn't be able to sort of map the star forming regions in galaxies around the universe. 
x-rays are where flares are given off, we wouldn't be able to detect some of the more powerful flares coming off from the sun, we wouldn't be able to detect neutron stars, black holes that are putting out large amounts of x ray radiation, and actually just like there's very hot gas surrounding galaxies that puts out a lot of x ray radiation wouldn't be able to see that gamma rays wouldn't be able to detect gamma ray bursts and other really extreme events. So we really do need both ground based and space based observatories to capture the entire electromagnetic spectrum. Now, the technology to make ground based telescopes has improved dramatically, you've got adaptive optics, so that you can make your ground based telescope act as if it's out in space, you can remove essentially the wobbling impact of the atmosphere, but you can't remove the actual atmosphere that is blocking those wavelengths of light. And so if you had like really gigantic, really powerful telescopes with really great adaptive optics, you would see the universe with clarity, but you would only see it in the visible light spectrum, and you wouldn't get all of that other stuff that provides a lot of value. So so no, thank you. <laughs> I don't want that. Juan Pedro Mariano. Did the entire universe act like a giant star shortly after the Big Bang when it was still hot enough for fusion to occur? Yeah, absolutely. So when we go back to the beginning of the universe, right, shortly after the Big Bang, the entire universe was like this quark gluon plasma. And then as the universe became less dense, over time, it cooled down to the point that the first atoms could form the first protons, hydrogen. And so the entire universe was hydrogen, but it was in essentially the core of a star, the entire universe was a star. And so from the 10 second mark, till about the 20 minute mark, fusion was going on across the entire universe. And in fact, that's where almost all of the helium that we have in the universe came from just these first 20 minutes after the Big Bang, and you actually got some other trace elements as well. But mostly, hydrogen was turned into helium during these early times. And then the universe continued to become less dense. And it was no longer hot enough and dense enough for nuclear fusion to occur. And then those ratios were just kind of locked in for the rest of the universe's history. And we see that in the ratios in the sun itself, the hydrogen and helium and some other trace metals but are left over from the Big Bang. Running Ray. Fraser, do you think that if James Webb detects copious oxygen in an exoplanet's atmosphere, that it means there is life there? Not exactly. So scientists think about this thing called biosignatures. And the idea is that you can take a really powerful telescope like James Webb or Ariel or some of these other telescopes designed to look at and measure the atmosphere of another planet. And they're going to be looking for some kind of biosignature, some kind of gas in the atmosphere that can't last very long without some source producing it. So a good example of that is like methane. Methane will only last in the atmosphere of a planet for a couple of hundred years, and then it will be broken up by solar radiation and various chemical processes and be broken up into its constituent elements, what carbon and hydrogen. But if you've got some source that's replenishing it like burping cows or rotting plant matter, then you get methane continuing on in the atmosphere. And there's lots of these, right? Methane is one ozone oxygen, that many of them would be a byproduct of life's process. The problem is that 
pretty much every single possible biosignature that has been identified by scientists, there is a natural explanation for their existence. And so yeah, burping cows could create methane, but also volcanoes could create methane. Same thing goes with ozone and oxygen and carbon dioxide and literally any kind of possible biosignature. And so that's kind of like the first problem. And so so far, astronomers haven't identified any just absolutely certain biosignature to say, if we detect this chemical in the atmosphere of a planet at all, then that means that it has to be life. Now there are some that could be the result of a technological civilization. So if you saw say chlorofluorocarbons in the atmosphere of a planet, that would be a pretty strong indication, because nature doesn't create very complex elements like that on its own. So what do we do? You know, we saw this controversy with the potential discovery of phosphine in the atmosphere of Venus just a couple of years ago, and scientists were arguing about whether or not it's really there, whether it's really a signal of life, if there's some natural process that can produce it. And Venus is just like right over there. It's not a planet orbiting a star 100 light years away, we could send a spacecraft to Venus to study it more closely. And so the kind of the sad news, the, the disappointing idea about this is that in the short term, like, yeah, James Webb is going to come online, it's going to look at some of the planets in the Trappist one system, it's going to help characterize the atmosphere of those planets. And it's going to find some really interesting things. But people cannot definitively say they're produced by life. It is going to be this really long, slow, incremental process. There's probably gonna to have to be much bigger space telescopes with much more sensitive instruments capable of detecting far fainter molecules in the atmosphere of another planet to get to a point where the scientific consensus is that yes, probably there's life in that planet over there. But all we can do is continue to gather more and more evidence over longer periods of time, build bigger telescopes, and push the emphasis in that direction. And so that's, you know, it feels like it's we're a lot more likely to detect life this way, like it's the most likely way that we're going to detect life in the universe. And yet, it's a way that is really quite, we're just in the infancy of it. You can imagine 20 years of this 30 years, 50 years of this scientists will have gotten much, much better, they'll have the right telescopes, they'll really understand the way the chemistry interacts, they'll have 1000s and 1000s of planets that they've looked at and studied, and we'll be able to make some more firmer calculations. So I guess what I'm really just saying is like, just be patient, that we're not going to find out overnight that there is life on some other planet, it's going to take decades, and there's going to be hints, and there's going to be controversy, and slowly we will have this dawning understanding of where there is life out there in the universe. If it's there at all. Harlick MBB. Hey, Fraser, will NASA colorize James Webb images to look like the type of Hubble images take and have more appeal to the public? All right, we've done a couple of episodes about just like how astrophotos are taken. But in general, the way it works is that you bring in a wavelength of light into your telescope. So maybe one very specific wavelength of infrared, and then a different wavelength of infrared, and then a different wavelength of infrared, or maybe you bring in red, blue and green, or maybe you bring in infrared, red and ultraviolet, 
or maybe you bring in 10 different wavelengths into your telescope. Like on Hubble, it has dozens of filter wheels that it can turn and put in front of its instruments to be able to change the kind of light that's coming in to the telescope, essentially blocking the light that they don't want. And so James Webb has multiple science instruments, and each one of these instruments has filter wheels. There's like 29 filter wheels on the near cam instrument. And so it'll be able to bring in light from James Webb, it'll be able to turn this filter wheel system, there's a cool video of this filter wheel turning, and it'll rotate around and put the right filter in front for bringing in exactly the wavelength that the telescope wants to see and blocking out the other stuff that they don't want to see. And so some filters are good for some things like looking at water or methane, better for cool stars, others better for hot stars. Some can reveal very specific elements like oxygen, hydrogen, things like that. And so the scientists, when they put in time on James Webb, they will go, I'm studying cool stars that are far away, I'm going to need to use this instrument on James Webb, I'm going to need to use these filters, I'm going to need this amount of time with this filter, and then that amount of time with that filter, and that amount of time with that filter, say three different filters, and then all that data is going to get dumped onto a hard drive that they can access and do their scientific research. But if you have three pictures, three versions of the same thing captured in three different wavelengths, you have the ability to make a full color photograph. Astrophotographers do this all the time. They will take an image in hydrogen, oxygen, and sulfur. And they get three different pictures that reveal different parts of say some nebula that they're trying to look at. And then in Photoshop, they assign hydrogen red, they assign oxygen blue, and they assign sulfur green and you create a full color photograph. But in fact, it's not like if you could look at it with your eyeballs, that's what you're going to see. It's that those different wavelengths have been combined to produce this because each one each wavelength shows off different features in the nebula that they're trying to see. And so you can expect the exact same thing is going to happen with James Webb. Scientists will be gathering data, they're going to be gathering them in different wavelengths of the same object, and someone's going to go, Okay, great. You've got your scientific data. Now let's make a pretty picture out of this. Let's take this wavelength of infrared and that wavelength of infrared and this third wavelength of infrared, we'll call this one red, this one green, this one blue, and we'll make a full color picture and it's going to look amazing. But it's not a thing that you would see with your own eyes because you literally couldn't even see the light that's coming into James Webb with your eyes. You need an infrared telescope to be able to see it. So yes, not only will NASA be using this approach on the images, but amateurs will be able to do it too. Anyone's going to be able to go in and access James Webb data and bring it into the image editing program of their choice and make really cool astrophotos out of it. So anticipate tons of this. Some of it's very scientifically important and others are going to be very artistically interesting. And it's going to be great to watch it all happening. Q public. Fraser, do you believe that the Big Bang is the absolute beginning of the universe? So this is a question that you don't like you ask me like, do I believe? And, and I don't believe like that's not a question that I would say like, this is what I believe. Because it's a question that is just like, I don't know the answer. Nobody knows the answer. There are two answers. One of them is going to be right. So either the answer is yes, the Big Bang was the beginning of the universe, or the answer is no, the Big Bang was not the beginning of the universe that there was some time before the Big Bang, and the universe was in some different state. And then some event happened that triggered the Big Bang and we got what was before a very dense universe became a much less dense universe that was able to eventually support life. So I don't have an opinion. 
I'm open minded either way. So if the scientific consensus seems to show that in fact, there was nothing before the Big Bang. Awesome. If the scientific consensus seems to show that there was some other thing before the universe and the Big Bang and inflation. Awesome. If the universe has always existed. Awesome. If this is the first and only time that a universe has come into being fascinating. I don't really care. Either way. All I want to know is I want to be along for the journey. As people try to learn more about the universe that we live in and whatever outcome happens. Uh, I can't wait to find out or never find out. I'm perfectly happy to just say I don't know. I don't know. MC Hall, if there was alien space junk in the solar system, where would it most likely be? Oh, is it okay? This is a great question. Um, so, so this idea of alien space junk. So, so you know, we've talked about this idea of like, where are all the alien robots? You know, where are the von Neumann probes that are self-replicating and expanding across the universe into every nook and cranny, going to a star system, setting up robotic factories, pumping out infinite numbers of themselves? You know, it's the Universal Paperclip Optimizer. Um, and so, you would anticipate that if this has happened in the past, then, I mean the thing you would most likely see is nothing because your planet and everything in the solar system has been turned into von Neumann probes, and they're now heading out to other planetary systems. But say that that process got interrupted, then there would be robotic factories kicking around the solar system still like maybe they were very light touch, they would just move to a star system, build just enough von Neumann probes to send off to the next star system and then shut the factory down. So they don't devastate the environment. And so you would anticipate that there would be factories somewhere around the solar system. Where would you find them? Well, where would be the best places to put them? You would want access to resources. So you would want access to both metals and minerals. You would want access to power. So you'd want to get as close as you could to the sun, but you want access to water, which is really more likely farther out from the solar system. Maybe you would bring in comets, asteroids, volatiles from the outer solar system in where there's power. Like it feels to me like power and minerals are more important. So the place that I would look would be like the southern pole of Mercury. That would be a good place because you're close to the sun, you can get a lot of power, you've got lots of raw materials on Mercury, there's probably water ice in the permanently shadowed craters on Mercury, that's a place I would go. Similar on the moon would be a good place to look. Um, yeah, those are the places I would go. Jurij Slavic. Hey, Fraser, do we know what causes the warping of the Milky Way? This is a fairly recent discovery. And this is this is a announcement made when the last couple of years, I think it was a, it was a team of Chinese scientists announced the that the Milky Way seems to have a warp to it. And there's been a lot of really interesting studies done with the guy instrument as well to track the positions and movements of all these stars in the Milky Way. And why does the Milky Way have a warp because it collided with another galaxy, we imagine the Milky Way is this beautiful, pristine spiral, but actually, the Milky Way has seen some things it has gobbled up and destroyed other dwarf galaxies, not recently, like probably eight plus billion years was the most recent major event. But when that happened, it that or a previous collision put a bit of a warp into the Milky Way's disk. Now the next big event, of course, is going to happen when the Milky Way collides with Andromeda in a few billion years. And that is going to tear both galaxies apart. And eventually they'll turn into this sort of diffuse ball, like some of the other elliptical galaxies out there. But yeah, the Milky Way is warped. 
More questions in a second. But first, I'd like to thank our patrons, David Lockhart, Xander Budnick, Andrew Houghton and the rest of our 816 patrons for their generous support. Want our videos early with no ads? Join our community at patreon.com slash universe today. Vegeta AFH. Are portals, stargates, teleportation more feasible than faster than light travel concepts to reach further stars? I don't have an opinion on this. I mean, like, they're all a long shot to begin with that the very possibility that there will be a practical way to move quickly around the universe is wishful thinking at this point, like maybe, maybe in the far, far future, somebody will figure out a way to travel faster than the speed of light. And it could very well be a way that we hadn't even thought of, like the infinite improbability drive from Douglas Adams, where you just sort of like, what's the most unlikely thing to occur that you're over at this part of the universe, boom, there you are. I don't know which one is going to be more technically feasible, which is like sad. I know, like we have all been fed a diet of science fiction with Star Wars, jumping to hyperspeed and Star Trek, using the warp drive and Stargate walking through a portal and interstellar using a wormhole and like, they're all just science fiction. Now, they're all loosely based on an idea that a physicist had once. But um, but, but they're so far away from being practical, right? Like if you just like set aside all those, then there's a whole other layer of, of more practical, still way out there science fiction ideas like harnessing antimatter or giant lasers that will allow you to power or busted ramjets that scoop in hydrogen and use fusion to fire them out or project Orion where you're dropping nuclear bombs behind your, like all those are unfeasible, but at least they don't break the laws of physics as we understand them. But unfortunately, the really juicy ones, the ones that would bring that Star Trek future into reality, all of those have very little, if any, scientific truth to them as we understand the laws of physics today. I'm like, I know that's sad. And I know you don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear that. I'm not gonna listen. Well, I'm not listening to what I'm saying. But but we have to be okay with the universe as it is. We have to be okay with the laws of physics as the rules that we're going to need to follow for the foreseeable future. And that get creative working from first principles within the laws of physics as we understand them. Now, absolutely, you know, I'm not going to, you know, if someone goes, Hey, we figured it out, there's warp drives and yay, right? Throw out all that work and let's move to that. But there's a lot that we can do with the technology that we have today with ion drives, with fully reusable two stage rocket systems like Starship with orbital refueling with solar sails and magnetic sails and potentially nuclear rockets and potential fusion rockets and so on. Like there's a lot of technology ahead of us that we already know how to use or are about to be able to use to give us a lot of access to space. So it's going to be it's still going to be a fun future, even if we don't get to hop in the in the starship and say engage and travel 100 light years in a couple of days. Lionel KJ seven OFH. Are there any privately funded science instruments and missions coming in the near future? There are actually a bunch of private missions that are coming up both robotic missions and human missions. 
And it's kind of amazing. I, I wouldn't have anticipated this, these sorts of things to come. So a lot of this work is coming from the Breakthrough Foundation. They have been funding development into various ideas. They've been funding the development of the Breakthrough Starshot, of course, which could be a robotic mission that sends tiny solar sail spacecraft with lasers to other star systems. That would be incredible. But there's also the Venus Life Finder mission, which is going to be traveling on a Rocket Lab rocket in the next couple of years, 2023, that's going to be going to try to gather evidence about the thing we talked about earlier in the show, this idea that there might be phosphine in the atmosphere of Venus. That's one idea. But we also like we've already seen the first private flight of the SpaceX Crew Dragon on Inspiration4. And like just today when I'm recording the show, they announced they're going to do a bunch more missions, including a human spacewalk out of the Crew Dragon, potentially the first private spaceflight on a starship, humans flying on a starship, which would be incredible. There are private space station modules planned as well as private space stations. So there are a bunch of interesting missions that are in the works now that are totally private. They're not funded by government. They're just rich individuals looking to explore space, expand space exploration, discover life on Venus. So it's actually a pretty exciting time. And I, I hope that if Starship works, and it does bring the cost down to a couple of million dollars a launch, then we'll see a lot more of these kinds of efforts, someone with a cool idea can spend $10,000 to build a CubeSat and tuck it away on a Starship and it'll fly for almost free and do some interesting scientific studies. So so I think we're going to enter a golden age of this. Stay tuned. Of course, the other possibility is like all the various asteroid mining companies that have been attempted, which are in various stages of bankruptcy, because it's very expensive and hard to do. So stay tuned. There's a lot of interesting things coming in the future. Johannes Ekman, in the future, can we find a planet with a reflective surface like a mirror 100 light years away and see what the Earth looked like 200 years ago? In theory, yes, that if you had a perfectly reflective planet 100 light years away and you looked at it you could see the earth as it looked 200 years ago because the photons left the earth traveled out to this planet bounced off of it and came back to us and we could see it in theory in practice no um earth doesn't give off very many photons at all planets aren't very reflective reflecting planets reflecting light like the number of photons would be essentially zero, there would be no photons that would make it do this return journey. And so yeah, if you built a mirror that was the size of a galaxy, but even like we would have a hard time detecting Earth more than 100 light years away. So I think, uh, yeah, in theory, yes, practically, no, James Hapgood. Do you think our coming AI would be considered enough of a threat for the aliens to come in and stop it from infecting the galaxy? Uh, that's, a, that's a great question. Uh, so this is like, I guess, a follow on from from last week's episode, and a civilization that is recklessly developing super artificial intelligence is definitely a threat to the stability of the universe that if the aliens were out there, and they were actually watching us, and they saw us developing artificial and super intelligence. And we were at the point where we were about to get a rapid takeoff, and they were about to start 
self-replicating and turning the earth into gray goo and then dismantling the solar system and then sending out the berserker probes to build universal paperclip generators, then that's the kind of thing that the aliens would probably want to stop. And so if they're out there and they're watching us as we run headlong towards artificial intelligence without really thinking through the control problem, feel free to intervene anytime because we're not doing a great job of thinking this through. So yeah, yeah, I think you're right that that if they were there, that's the kind of thing that would be an existential threat to them because there's no putting the genie back in that bottle. Once you do it, like you create artificial superintelligence, it goes on forever until it has gobbled up the entire observable or the entire reachable universe. Was it the Hubble sphere of the universe? Anyway, play universal paperclip, do it for yourself. It's awesome. Bearded roofer. What about the long term effects of space travel on the human body? Are we going to evolve into little green men? I don't know if being green makes you more able to travel in space. I don't know about that part. But but I get what you're getting at. Um, like, will we be the greys? <laughs> because because we've evolved into some futuristic version of human beings. We don't know what the limits of evolution are with respect to microgravity. But in theory, I can imagine, like if there was water in space, like if there was some environment that was kept alive, kept with nutrients and water, then life would evolve to deal with microgravity over long periods of time. But I don't know if large mammals like human beings could adapt their bodies enough to be able to deal with all of the downsides of being in microgravity. Or you would just need something else like a fish or a jellyfish or some other body form. And the reality is we just don't know, like we don't know with enough detail, we know that in the short term, the human body is very poorly equipped to deal with space, that our muscles weaken, our bones soften, that fluids redistribute in our bodies, there's issues with our eyes, there's problems with our hearts, it's all kinds of issues, you can deal with some of them through extreme exercise. There's cool ideas for like wearing a negative pressure sleeping bag that will pull the fluids out of the upper body and back into the lower body. So it may very well be that we can get to a point with technology that we can mitigate the issues. But I don't know if we would get to a point where we could evolve our way to handle it. But I'm sure we would eventually evolve a way to be able to handle it better. But then you think about things like can babies gestate? Will spines be straight in microgravity? Are there other congenital birth defects that would happen? So right now, we just don't know. We just do not understand what the limits are of what is the long term impact of microgravity on just creatures in general. And even what is the effect of being on the moon and being on Mars and all of that. And so we're going to probably find some halfway point where we can live on the gravity of the moon for longer than in space. But we have to come up with these ways of dealing with the downsides, we can do better on Mars, but still, we have to exercise in certain ways, we have to sleep in our negative pressure sleeping bags, there's various things that we have to do to deal with it. You know, every now and then we have to spend some time on the centrifuge to try and put some gravity back into our lives. 
And over time, we will change if we just lived in that life for a long time. But I don't think we would ever get to a point where just the human body can adapt to the point that it's just fine with microgravity. I don't think so. But so much more research is needed. Like, and we're not doing any of it. So we need to find out. Busted Rav. Can you talk about how pressure waves cause the spiral arms to move in a galaxy? Sure. Uh, so when we look at a galaxy, and we see those really cool spiral arms that are twisting around in the galaxy, our expectation is that like the whole galaxy is turning like a pinwheel. And those spiral arms are just like a structure of the galaxy. But that's not the case. The spiral arms are actually a pressure wave that is moving around the galaxy at a different rate than the galaxy itself is turning. And as this pressure wave moves through regions of the galaxy, it essentially causes clouds of gas and dust to get pushed together, and it leads to star formation. And so as this spiral arm is moving through the galaxy, it's leaving regions of star formation in its wake. And it's slowly moving around. And I'm not sure what the speed is of the arm versus the rotation rate of the galaxy. But I just love this idea that the spiral arms of a galaxy are just where these pressure waves are currently and not an actual physical structure of the galaxy. It's really cool. Marilyn Sterling. What would you see if you slice through the middle of a neutron star? Can neutrons remain intact under that amount of pressure? If not, what's in the core? So a neutron star is a dead star when you have a star with many times the mass of the sun explodes as a supernova, the layers collapse in on itself, and you get this really dense object. And what's really happened is that the protons and the electrons, which normally like to stay apart, are under such intense gravity that they get mushed together and get turned into neutrons. And the whole point of a neutron star is that the whole thing is made of neutrons. So it is the last stage before if you compress it any more, then the whole thing turns into a black hole, and then you can't see it anymore. But if you sliced open a neutron star, it would still have layers, but it would just have really weird layers. So at the sort of the outer edge, you would still have some protons and some electrons sort of out on the surface of this object, you might even get so it's kind of like imagine that's like the atmosphere of the neutron star. And then as you go inside of that, the next layer down, you're going to have more protons, more electrons, but you're also going to get a lot of the neutrons. And they're going to be in this sort of super fluid way that they're moving around inside the neutron star. And then as you go down even farther into it, then it's just all neutrons all the way down into the very core. So it's like neutrons in the middle, mostly neutrons mixed in with some protons and some electrons surrounded by an atmosphere, atmosphere of protons and electrons. Sir Goosey. Hey, Fraser, why is weightlessness called microgravity acceleration of freefall isn't that different on a 400 kilometer distance from the Earth as well as the gravity is almost the same there. Keep it up. Yeah, so like whatever you say zero gravity, some one will tell you that you're using the wrong term that the term is really microgravity. And when you're in orbit, around the Earth, for example, the astronauts on board the International Space Station are experiencing 90% of the gravity that we're experiencing down on the surface of the Earth. The difference is that they are in orbit, they are falling. And they are falling around the Earth at the exact same speed that would stop them from actually hitting the Earth, they're essentially going 
sideways fast enough that they don't actually crash into the earth, but they're still experiencing the gravity. It's just that the forces on them is balanced. And so from their perspective, they experience zero gravity, but the technical term is microgravity. If you were out in the middle of the largest super void, you would still be experiencing gravity, you experiencing gravity from every piece of mass and light in the observable universe all the time. We're it's just that the amount of that gravity is, is fairly weak compared to being on the earth. And so that's a term that better expresses that you are still experiencing gravity. It's just that the forces on you are very balanced. Jerome Goring, in your opinion, instead of going to Mars, would it make more sense to check out Titan or another potentially more habitable moon? Is that Titan habitable? I mean, Titan is really cold. I mean, and the atmosphere is, is not great. And it's in a radiation environment around Saturn, but does have a thick atmosphere that helps protect it. So I mean, they all suck. Mars sucks, Titan sucks, they're all fascinating and interesting and wonderful. And they should be explored with rovers and humans, and it would be great. But when you think about like, where you want to live, nothing beats the Earth. All right, thanks, everyone. Those are all the questions that we got this week. Super fun, as always. Uh, if you want to join this show live, you can watch it here on my YouTube channel at 5pm Pacific time, there'll be a link to the live show just on the main page of my YouTube channel. And uh, I hope to see you next week. Ask your questions. All right. See you later. If you want a single comprehensive resource for space news, you'll want to subscribe to my weekly email newsletter. Every Friday, I send out a magazine of space news with dozens of stories, pictures, brief highlights and links so that you can find out more. Go to universetoday.com slash newsletter to sign up and it's totally free. And did you know that all of my videos are also available in a handy audio podcast format so that you can have the latest episodes as well as special bonus material like interviews with me show up on your audio device. Go to universetoday.com slash audio or search for Universe Today on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'll put a link in the show notes. Thanks to all the moderators and a special thanks, as always, to Chad Weber and Nancy Graziano.